another episode of The Ladies Room. She is Jane McManus. I am Julie DeCaro. We are your hosts. Uh, I've got another great guest coming up today. We're going to talk to Claire Smith, legendary baseball beat reporter. She's literally in Cooperstown. I mean, not her, not her person, but like she as an icon is in Cooperstown. Um, So we're going to talk with her in just a bit. We're super excited for it. But before we get to that, Jane... (laughs) Uh, Once again, we have seen that no matter what the NCAA likes to say about women's sports, when it comes to men and women's sports, they do not view the two as equal. Right. We saw Sedona Prince, who a player for the Ducks, was able to document, um, you know, like I just I love the way she did it because she, you know, it was obviously her and her phone. And she had this look on her face like, can you believe this shit? (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought, you know, like here you have a young woman who realizes what she's being confronted with and it's straight up misogyny and inequity. And I, I love that she didn't have to pretend to be nice about it. She didn't have to pretend that it was okay. She didn't have to make other people feel okay because she was getting screwed. No, she was just able to be completely upfront about it. So she showed the quote unquote weight room, which was, you know, a set of Costco weights and some yoga mats. <laughs> Stack of yoga mats just killed me. Because you know, there was somebody like, they do yoga, right? That's what girls do, yoga? Yeah, give them some yoga mats. <laughs> they like to stretch. We'll give them something to stretch yeah. on. Yeah, so that, and then of course, the empty, huge empty room that these, this little token was uh, placed in. And, you know, and then you compare that to the, 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 I would say cathedral of uh, fitness that the, that the men's teams were, were built uh, in a, you know, gorgeous ballroom. So of course the NCAA, the release the state where they have the, they have the, the woman who's the VP of uh, basketball operation, women's basketball operations, mind you, uh, go out and say, Oh, uh, that was a mistake. We, didn't have the space. We weren't going to have the space until the Sweet 16, which of course then Sedona Prince's video completely made a lie of. Um, you know, and and then it came out. It wasn't just that. It was also the food. Another player of, of a, a Division II player came out and documented the court that she'd be playing on compared to the Division II court for the Sweet 16 men. There have been any number of ways that the inequity has been made clear. Don Staley's come out legendary coach and player has come out and talked about the the historic inequity. Muffet McGraw, another, you know, giant in women's basketball coaching. has come out and talked about this. And and I'll tell you, Julie, I I know this is, this is maybe next level, but I'm going to get there early is I wonder how many women have been, have been passed over for coaching jobs because they wouldn't take that bullshit. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, you know, what killed me about it as I knock over my entire uh, stand here in my closet, in my recording <laughs> studio, um, a couple of things about it. Another thing came out today, which is that if you go to Getty Images and do a search for, you know, NCAA tournament for men's, you have just pictures and pictures and pictures and pictures, pages and pages. For the women's, as of today, it still was just a picture of the women's logo. And that was it. No pictures. Yeah. Because they said, what, we don't have enough photographers to cover all the women's games or something ridiculous. They, um, they didn't invest in it. They didn't invest in the photographers. They didn't invest in the weight equipment. They didn't I mean, invest in the food. It's bad enough that they sent them to a state without a mask mandate, first of all. I mean, the first thing should have been, no, we're pulling that. The fir- that should have been the first thing to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then when and then they did wind up getting the weights equipment because Dix came to the rescue and Tonal came to the rescue and they all sent equipment. And even once they had it set up, then they had pink and blue mood lighting. It looked like what? a curves. Somebody what said on Twitter on earth was the, that seriously. They just need the weight equipment. I mean, <laughs> we, we don't need the ambiance. Like just need, just what the guys had would have been fine. Um, mood, it's just mood lighting. Yeah. It did. Somebody said it looked like a curves and that's exactly what it looked like. Um, you know, what kills me is that the NCAA always finds a way to face plant on this stuff. And they just never, 
have the forethought to figure out where the problems are going to come and figure out how to make things equitable. And I don't know if it's that they are just incompetent or if they don't care or some combination of both. But imagine being the person in charge of the women's tournament and having to answer for all that. So I think one of the problems undercutting this, and this has come out in some of the reporting and in some of what the coaches have talked about, and that is that the contract that was signed between the NCAA and the teams in the tournament for the women's tournament and the men's tournament, they were two different contracts. So two different set of expectations, two different agreements on what would be provided and accommodations, et cetera. And it, what, it is, what it shows is the institutional priorities are just laid bare. I think the NCAA attempts to make a good show of NCAA priorities being equality being among them, but but it's not, but they aren't. So usually at this time of year, you're having the venues, the sites be the one in the early on in the tournament, putting on the games, providing the accommodation, et cetera. Um, but now it's the NCAA because of the bubble format. And just it just shows, it lays bare the resources that they devote to one tournament over the other. And yes, there, the there, there is not the amount of money that they get for broadcasting each of these tournaments is not the same. There are a lot of historical reasons for that. Um, but it is certainly women's basketball is a property with tremendous growth. I mean, I think the double yeah. the NCAA uh women's bracket on ESPN had a hundred percent more uh people filled it out this year than mm-hmm. in the most than in 2019, which was the most recent year for it. So just you know, terrific growth potential as all women's sports that have been broadcast recently have found. Um, so this is just about institutional priorities. The NCAA is a money-making business masquerading as an amateur sporting event. And, and that is the underlying, that, that inequity and that lie under is the, is the premise under which all of this falls. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Um, and, you know, in, in my book, Howard, I'm not, I, I'm, I swear I'm not going to keep bringing up the book, but it's Howard, I'll Howard, keep bringing, every time you bring up a book, I'm bringing up roller derby. Okay. So. The, the fantastic Howard Megdal said in my book something to the effect of let's give women's basketball the 25 years of hype and marketing that the NBA and NCAA men's basketball have had and then see where we are. Because every time we hear the like women don't bring in as much, they don't make as much. It's like, of course they don't. They've been left twisting in the wind on their own for 25 years. Sure. Because they're stretching on the yoga mats instead of with lifting weights. Right. I mean, it is absolutely emblematic of why things are like that because they have been equipped poorly, not fed properly. Nobody's put 10 minutes of thought into their swag bag or where they're going to play or how to get a photographer to their game so that newspapers can run pictures after, you know, after each game. It it is absolutely shows you why, you know, when you treat something like a second class product, this is what you get. Right. Exactly right. That's 100%. Well, speaking of inequities, we are about to talk with Claire Smith, who is the first woman to have a beat, a baseball beat for the Hartford Current. She covered the Yankees um, in MLB and obviously a huge hero and icon to, to a lot of people. So we'll talk with Claire when we come back right after this. This week's guest in the ladies' room is uh, a hero to me personally, uh, to Jane as well, I'm sure, to so many women uh, working in sports media these days. Claire Smith was, I believe, the first woman in America to have a baseball beat, covering the Yankees for the Hartford Current. Um, She's written for the New York Times, the Philly Inquirer. She's been with ESPN. And the first woman to be honored with the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, which is, thank thank gosh, going to be renamed um, by the Baseball Writers Association of America. She's a Hall of Famer. We are thrilled to welcome Claire Smith to the show. Hi, Claire. Hello. Hello, Jane. Hello. How are you doing, everybody? Joy, everybody. Well, we're so excited to have you here, Claire. When we're talking about women who really sort of were the first ones through the wall um, to hold the door open for the rest of us, your name is obviously right at the top. Um, I just published a book this week in which you feature prominently in the first chapter because of the story you told in Let Them Wear Towels that Jane and I talk about every single week on the show um, uh, about standing outside the locker room trying to get your quotes and having Steve Garvey, of all people, come out and be the one to stand there with you 
And, you know, we talked quite a bit about what you guys all went through so that we could come in behind you. Well, you know, it, it would be absolutely false for me to pretend that I was the first. I didn't have to go through what Melissa Lutke and Jane Gross and, and those who preceded us all went through. But, um, you know, we, we take turns handing off the baton, excuse uh, cliche alert there, <laughs> uh, but handing off the baton. And the fact that we still listen to this generation of reporters um, in quiet whispers tell us about their hardships it just tells you we've come so far, but we have so far to go. A hundred percent. And, now, and it, you know, you talk about how, you know, Jackie Robinson was such a kind of a, a story that inspired you and, and, and what he went through and, and breaking baseball's color line. And so much has changed in the world, but at the same time, you know, baseball hasn't done a terrific job with uh, in the African-American community, uh, cultivating talent um, and and diversifying its ranks, and you know, you are someone who's covered this now for so long. What are what specifically do you think baseball's issue with that is? Considering that it has this great origin story, it has a great origin story, and I think it was it was moving right along thanks to the just the jackpots, if you will, baseball discovered in in cities like LA and Oakland and the entire state of uh of oh Georgia and and Mississippi and and just hotbeds of baseball pre-Jackie Robinson and uh fellows that just followed Jackie in lockstep right into the major leagues. I think um there are probably bookmarks that will show us where it started to go wrong. Al Campanis's statement on leading up to the 40th anniversary of Jackie's breaking the uh, the barrier uh, 1987 where he said blacks didn't have the necessities to be in management mm. uh, to be coaches, managers or God forbid general managers, I think had a really, really disastrous effect on baseball in terms of keeping and uh, recruiting, keeping, holding uh, the African-American sports fan. Now, if you lose mom and dad, chances are you're going to lose the kids as well. Mom and dad buy the tickets um, and plant that first seed of fandom in their children's uh, minds. If mom and dad don't buy the gloves for softball and baseball, then the kids aren't going to gravitate towards the sport. And that was such an insult, such a moment where it became quite clear that we could we could perform as we do on stage. Um, we can pick the crops as we did and, you know, on the plantations. But don't you dare have any any um, dream of being part of the decision making, being part of management, being part of ownership. I think it started to disintegrate right then and there. So, Claire, you know, we all the time we hear people talking in baseball about how at Major League Baseball is, you know, they, they donated a million dollars to the Negro Leagues Museum. And now they're going to consider Negro League Baseball stats or at least some of them as part of Major League Baseball statistics. Um, we hear about them, you know, donating bats and gloves and travel expenses to little league teams. But if you're major league baseball and you're watching interest among young black children in America, Wayne in baseball, how do you begin to get them back? Well, again, I think you begin by growing the fan base. Uh, you don't just settle uh, for the notion that what the stands in Major League Baseball look like that they have to look that way. Uh, you take your the best cues from the NBA and the NFL, probably more the NBA, and just uh, ask them, what's your blueprint? How'd you sell this game? 
aside from having 60% um, African-American players on the court. But how did you do that? You had Michael Jordan, but we had Jackie. Um, Yeah, you have LeBron James, but we have Mookie. Uh, Betts, Mm -hmm. are we marketing these players in all the right places? Are we asking for their help and input? I, I like the fact that the union and the commissioner's office have joined with Curtis Granderson's uh, Players Alliance. The players in basketball uh, led the management into a better social awareness uh, last year when it was just absolutely wonderful to watch the women and the men of the WNBA and NBA show such leadership. But baseball players stepped out before the sport did, and the sport is catching up with them. So I would hope that baseball's focus will be as much on their players of 2021 as they are on the players of uh, 1947 and, and in that initial period. Mookie Betts and Andrew McCutcheon and the Curtis Grandisons, CC Sabathias, they've lived this. They've watched their numbers dwindle to the single digits. Mookie Betts had to be well aware that he was the only African-American in the World Series last year. So Mookie should be on every single panel that his schedule allows. He should have a say. He should feel that he has ownership in this game, much the way LeBron James does uh, in basketball. And his his opinion should be valued. Curtis is amazing. He should also be in partnership with baseball, reaching out to the Alliance. Um, I think that's going to happen. Rob Manfred, I, I believe, is showing more interest in this area than really... I think you'd have to go back to Faye Vincent to see this kind of, of wow. uh, desire to to embrace not only the history of the Negro Leagues, but also put programs like uh, reviving baseball in the inner city into play. Uh, Len Coleman was a force when he was National League president in reviving baseball in the inner city. Reviving baseball in the inner city doesn't, it's not race-based. It's basically what communities are underserved, where where are the children who we can help uh, fall in love with baseball by assisting their parents with equipment, fields, um, and coaching and access to as much information, knowledge, uh, education as possible. That's not race-based. That's serving are getting to underserved communities, whether it be out in the middle of farm country or in the inner cities. Kids want to play baseball. That's been proved over and over again. If you give them access, they will come out and play. If you build it, they will play. Um, I was at the opening of the first RBI field in New York City. Little League had been out of New York City for about 40 years, not one Little League team. Uh, With the uh, reintroduction in the form of reviving baseball in the inner city, there are now hundreds and hundreds of teams all through New York City of little kids, all colors, playing, playing the sport. When that field was open, thanks to uh, financial input from the Yankees and the Mets, in part, and Major League Baseball, I remember talking to a police officer uh, uh, who was also at the ceremony, and he pointed out a building to me, and he said, that used to be a drug den, but because this field is now up and running 24-7, as are most baseball fields in New York City, because there's such a demand uh, for uh, playing uh, space, he said that the drug uh, house closed because there was always a police presence, because there were always kids there 
and and young adults playing on that field, uh, well lit field, and they the drug uh, folks felt uncomfortable, so they left. They left the neighborhood. Uh, if that doesn't tell you about the need of families and neighborhoods wanting this positive activity, I don't know what does. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I also, I wonder how much of an effect the pay structure for baseball affects who, who it attracts, because sure, if you make the major leagues, you have guaranteed money in a way that athletes and other sports envy, which is terrific. But if you don't, and you need time in the minors, the pay structure there is quite different in a way that I would think, you know, it, 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 you really have to scrape in order to make, make it go, make a go of it if you don't make the majors. And I just wonder if that, if you think that contributes at all to who is interested in playing. Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, baseball's minor leagues are truly minor leagues in the tradition that we think. NBA and NFL minor leagues, uh, it's also known as the NCAA. Right. So you you might not be getting that paycheck of fifteen thousand dollars signing bonus and in uh, in the NCAA, but you're getting tens and twenty, thirty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars worth of educational opportunities. Uh, that's going to hurt your parents, if anything. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a much more glamorous uh, minor league system than baseball has. Mm-hmm. So how does baseball compete with that? Uh, I was speaking with uh, Harold Reynolds of MLB Network. He thinks that baseball can really, really uh, compete on in a much greater way if it just says to the NCAA, uh, we want to fund baseball across the board and give the kids who play it a stipend and have them make a decent living where they can step out of, of college and step into our system if they choose to. There are so few uh, college baseball scholarships available to begin with, and those scholarships are going to kids that really, really have the wherewithal, their families have the wherewithal to have the best equipment, have the the private uh, coaching academies, to, to be on travel teams, on and on and on, which you're inner city kid or your kid from the poorest regions of the country, they're already at a disadvantage. They're never going to have that leg up to win those scholarships. So not only don't you see uh, African-Americans per se on major league teams, you don't see them through the mi- uh, down through the minors either or on the NCAA playing fields because they just can't compete financially or have access to the travel teams, the the leagues, the private coaching, and so on and so forth. So if baseball can step in and and do what it did throughout Latin America with its academies, which Mm -hmm. it's trying to do, but also come up with some very inventive, creative ways, such as what Harold is suggesting, then they get back on the right footing and they show communities, underserved communities, that they're not going to be forgotten anymore and that they really, really want those communities to be a part of this wonderful rainbow, if you will. Claire, it's such a great point. Um, And, you know, in the area that I live in, um, baseball has the same problem soccer does, which is if you want to play outside of your school team and if you want to make your school team, you play on a travel team and you go to Florida and Las Vegas and Texas in the winter months to play in showcase tournaments. And, you know, if you can't afford to be part of that, you're not going to play baseball, um, which is a big problem um, that we have in soccer as well. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, circling back to how we market 
baseball and the way that the NBA markets itself. And I've, I, you know, I think we've all been thinking a lot over the past five, 10 years about the quote unquote unwritten rules in baseball. And that if, you know, somebody shows you up, you've got to hit him. And if, uh, you know, a guy is quote unquote, you know, flashy, like what they call Javi Baez, he's flashy. Um, it's a, it's a negative thing. And every kid I know in my, in my community loves watching Javi Baez. They'll run around with Javi Baez shirts on because he, to them, makes baseball fun and exciting and interesting. But you've got this older generation of white men who think, you know, you, if you hit a home run, you don't even look at the pitcher. You put your head down and you circle the bases. And when we see something like the World Baseball Classic, we see such a completely different kind of baseball, of baseball with joy and excitement and flash and players have beef with each other. Those are all the things that we love about the NBA. Um, and baseball has not allowed that. And I think that, you know, when we talk about marketing baseball like the NBA, which I think you're absolutely right, is something they should be doing. How do we sort of get into that space where everyone is playing with joy instead of putting their heads down and worried about not getting hit by a pitcher? Well, I think that we should all keep an eye on a very interesting um, dance that's going to happen this summer. And that's going to be between Tony Larusa, the manager of the White Sox, and Tim Anderson, yeah. uh, the, the flashy, in-your-face, um, I'm going to say what I want to say and, and do what I want to do on the field in terms of having fun and breathing life into this game. We're going to have that generational clash up close and personal. Um, Tony Larissa's teams always struck me as wearing, almost wearing tags that said, no fun allowed. <laughs> you weren't allowed to, to show any emotions whatsoever. And if you did, uh, he had pretty much a team of enforcers to tempt that out of any player who showed personality. So you're absolutely right. I think that there's even more leeway um, for Latin American players to show that spirit than there are for African American players to show it. Because as Adam Jones once said, when there's only one of you in the, in the clubhouse, you can be made to disappear. Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to take generations of hard, awful work for baseball to make Latin American influence disappear. It's got a better chance of staying than the, the uh, methods, methodology of, as you said, old white, older white men staying. It's here to stay. Um, whether that's going to be enough to, to allow uh, the one African-American on your team to feel comfortable enough to join in that fun without being labeled in a negative way. That remains to be seen. Well, I can tell you who's going to win in the, in the fan base because Chicago loves Tim Anderson and is not so sure about Tony LaRusso. <laughs> yeah. Tony's coming with some baggage. Um, it, it will be interesting. I am fascinated like crazy. It already started because they were both kind of dug in after Tony was signed, um, mm -hmm. have you talked to Tim Anderson? No. Tim Anderson, <laughs> have you called Tony? No. Uh, uh, and and the to me, what they weren't saying was, <laughs> hey, it's up to him to call me. I don't have to call him. <laughs> it's like, dang, guys, you're in the first <laughs> week. And you're already kind of going at it. So it will be interesting. That's for sure. Watch them turn out to be like the best of friends. Like they will get along like gangbusters and just show everybody up. That'll be interesting. But you know, it, it's funny too because who who would be the perfect manager for uh, uh, Tim Anderson? You would think. Well, probably one of the uh, other old guys, uh, Joe Madden or Dusty Baker. Uh, they would have no problem. But Tony is from a different old school than Joe and, and Dusty. So I'm going to be fascinated watching this unfold. Well, I think baseball has shown that it can change some things up. Like last year, 
you know, mostly due to COVID, they ended up having to switch some things around, change some rules, the DH, et cetera. Do you think that that, you know, for a sport that really loves its traditions, do you think that that could possibly mean, you know, consideration of change in the future that might end up, you know, making the game more fun and more watchable? And, you know, it's, it's really tough to watch in a baseball game, especially for this young generation on TV because there's so much time where stuff is not happening. And I just wonder if that also kind of gets in the sports way, attracting a younger audience. Well, baseball just has to start thinking outside the box. What do you do to fill those minutes? Yeah, they're carving down the amount of time that pitching coaches can spend on the mound that uh, the number of times catchers can go out and a la Carlton Fisk. And isn't that your 15th visit (laughs) in the last three minutes, Carlton? Um, But does it have to loosen up what we see on TV? Do we need more talking heads or are they going to go the way of football and put uh, dancing girls out there? What are they going to do? Please no. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Don't put it past anyone to do that. But if you get some, some people with real imagination, what, okay, find out first of all, what 18 to 25 or uh, men and women, uh, what interests them, what stories, be storytellers, tell them the stories they want to hear. Take them inside the world of the athletes that you want them to glom onto and follow and adore, if you will. Uh, do do your homework. Do your do, do diligence. Have some contests. Have uh, kids in the booth, if you will. Have whatever it takes, but do something different. If you know you have dead air time, figure out how to how to fill it. Um, and figure it out, not in terms of, as you said, the old history lessons of um, the Negro Leagues, uh, which unbelievable stories there, but you're talking ancient Greece when you're talking to, to elementary school students, high school students. Heck, they don't remember the year 2000, and why should they? They weren't right. around. Uh, so our history is almost ancient history. I like to tease kids saying, yeah, I started way back in the last century. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it makes them laugh too, but it's true. And if we just, if we just acknowledge that and acknowledge this is more than ever a generation that lives in the here and now, we got to figure out how to tap into that here and now. Claire, I've got two questions for you. One has nothing to do with the other. I'm just curious. But the first one is a serious question, which is, you know, you won the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, which is now being called the Baseball Writers Association of America Career Excellence Award. Um, It is the highest award given by the Baseball Writers Association. Um, You're in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, I, I, I rack my brain to think of a baseball writer who's more respected than you are. It had to be a thrill to win this award, and yet it's named after a guy who supported segregated baseball. You had to have had conflicted feelings about that at the time. And my second question is just off, sort of off the cuff. Um, does Rob Manfred like baseball? I think that uh, <laughs> first question, first uh, question is, uh, sadly, 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 not many of us knew J.G. Taylor Spink's mm. uh, greatest secrets. And we didn't know until this this past year when Bruce Jenkins, God bless him, a San Francisco Chronicle, uh, did his homework, did his research and said, let's take a look at this guy. That came after um, the Landis MVP uh, award was renamed because we all kind of knew Landis's mm-hmm. deal. He he single-handedly held blacks out of baseball um, for decades. Yeah, and we did know his history, but um, just kind of went along. Uh, not many people call it the Landis MVP award. We just mm-hmm. called it the National League or American League MVP award. 
Uh, but in the, the summer of awakening, if you will, people started to question this at much the way the monuments were questioned, the, the uh, Southern generals who were more honored than the Union generals and so on and so forth. So Landis's name came off first, and then Bruce looked at our own awards, the Baseball Writers Awards, and said, hey, what a, look at what this guy did. And he started digging up articles and everything, and, and that's when the realization that Spank was not for all. He was for a segregated America. Once that came to light, then, then it was warp speed to get his name uh, before the voting members, and we voted to have his name removed. So no, when I received the award, I did not know um, Spink's history, and I'm sure that the 68 other people who came before me didn't know either. That's on us. That's our bad. But I voted, I, I fully supported having his name taken off the award, as did the Sporting News, which was his Bible, his baseball Bible, the, and the instrument that he weaponized to keep blacks out of baseball. Uh, second question. <laughs> uh, yes, I think that Rob Manfred not only likes baseball, I think he loves baseball. I think that um, most every commissioner who's been in that office likes and or loves baseball. Does that mean that everything they do is going to be popular or be beloved by the progressive wing of the baseball fans or the the old guard, old school, um, traditional swing? No, but I I think he's the I like where his heart is. I've had um, really decent uh, working relationship with Rob, and I can't say that was always the case with some of his predecessors. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but he, he, he is going to get hit no matter what he does. But as they say in baseball, if you if you hit 30 percent of what's thrown to you, you're going to the hole. Right. <laughs> so, um, no, but I I think it's for people who want to say he hates baseball. I think that's facetious. And and I hope it gets I hope that people get the laugh that they're looking for. Um, no one could want to get pummeled that routinely and not have uh, have some some love for the game or they walk away. Just like the three of us, you write an article, you get killed for it and everybody, your peers will joke and say, but yeah, but you get to talk to the players and you get free food in the press box <laughs> and everything. Yeah, there's always that upside, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> Well, and you can probably he could he could Manfred can give a call to Roger Goodell who gets booed every time the NFL draft starts in front of a live audience. So you know they could commiserate there. If they have yeah, I, and I'm sure they want to take uh, David Silva aside and say, "Dude, what's the magic? <laughs> you know, how do you do it? How do you do it?" Well, David Silva, Silva, and and his wonderful predecessor found a way to make the players feel that they were in partnership. Right. I think once you cross that uh, great divide and make them feel that you're all in it together, that's, that's the battle. That's, that's the war that's won. And, and they've done that in the NBA. They're not, I don't believe they're any closer to doing that in the NFL than they are in baseball. It's just that baseball players and its union, they tend to be a lot more outspoken than the folks in football. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think Rob is <laughs> young enough, although he's probably feels like he's aging in dog years, um, <laughs> that he'll have time, but he's kind of like uh uh, FDR, since we're using FDR's name a lot, he's got his pandemic, his war, his this, his that all rolled into one. 
and he has one and a half chances to get it right. Um, they got through the postseason with one very celebrated, but if I recall, just one um, COVID case, and it came after the last pitch was thrown. So um, they didn't lose anybody, thank God. Um, and uh, now they're trying it without the bubble. He keeps changing rules, but they seem to be uh, pliable changes and they discard some and they don't change any rules really without the tacit approval of the players. Uh, the players want this game to to succeed as much as anyone in management, probably more. It's what they banked on. It's what they decided to play instead of being that tiny point guard in, in the NBA or, or at UCLA or what have you. So, yeah, the players love the game, too. And a lot of times the same people that tell you that Rob Manfred hates it will tell you that the players hate it, too. Mm. Not everybody can hate the same thing at the same time. <laughs> right right that would be very strange if baseball was a hate of the game for everybody but uh i doubt that's it you know you bring up a great point about the nba and adam silver had years under the tutelage of david stern to kind of figure out pr wise what the right strategy was and and kind of how to address their fan base and they seem to have figured it out but you know manfred has the one thing that has happened in baseball over the last year is that Kim Eng is is now the manager of the Marlins, the first woman to, um, I'm sorry, general man, general manager, general manager, yeah, and the first woman to um, to hold that role, and um, and I just wonder, do you you know if you can give us any intel behind the scenes on on whether or not that was something that baseball was getting involved in? Was there was there discussion um, about about being more inclusive? in those higher up levels is, you know, something you were talking about earlier, whereas you have to be able to see yourself in the decision makers. I'm sure there have been um, generalized cross the board discussions. And, and just as you can have the, the rule in football that you have to consider African-Americans for the head coaching job, you can tell people that you can have the Salic rule and, and its counterparts in the other sports, but then teams get to do what they want to do. Um, having said that, uh, Derek Jeter is the president or the, the face of the Marlins, and I have a hard time believing that anybody can tell Derek what to do or what not to do. Um, I haven't spoken to Derek since the hire, but I'd like to think that Derek hired the the person who was best suited for the job and the best person that the Marlins could find. Now it's bad on every other team that said it, it considered her for uh, the top job in the, in the front office, but didn't hire her shame on them, but the Marlins did hire her and she was the best person for the job. If you listen to all of her, her champions, if you will. Um, God, good on them. Good on them. They did that. And I'd, I'd bet that Rob didn't move a chess piece on that board. Um, the, he, could, he could opine and wish and, and push and hope that more teams would open up like that. I think his, his harder job is trying to get baseball uh, management to pay attention at levels under uh, underneath the GM because that's where the uh, the MIT grads, the Penn grads, the Ivy Leaguers are kind of uh, nudging out the baseball people. And baseball is a sport where your friends hire your friends. Um, so you're having baseball people who, like Dallas Green used to say, make baseball decisions based on heart and mind pushed out by sabermetric people who make decisions based on on sabermetrics a, instead of 
uh, okay, what would you do in this situation? If you were Dusty Baker, are you going to go with your heart and leave that picture in? Or are you going to go the way of the Tampa Bay manager and let the numbers dictate to you that you take a picture out who just struck out the first three Dodgers in the order a total of nine times? And you're going to switch up because the the computer tells you, well, he's probably done because they're going to figure him out. No, maybe not. They figured out the guy that came in after him, though. Um, but <laughs> you will never know if they were going to figure him out. The look on Mookie Betts's face was pure relief. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so, uh, I think that's where you're having that push back and and people applauding in their glove when you see perhaps the return of the heart and mind folks, or at least have them uh, be a be applauded a little more the way Dusty was and the way uh, Dave Roberts was because he went with his gut on some. Uh, on some decisions and and they certainly would have come after Dave if they hadn't worked out. Um, so I I hope that answered the question. I speak tend to speak so long that I forget what the question was. So I that's a real struggle, Claire. I feel the exact same way. Before we <laughs> let you go, um, you know, I've got to ask you where you think we're headed in labor relations in baseball after this CBA is up because Things were getting real contentious between the players and the owners um, two off seasons ago, right before COVID hit. And we were all like, oh, gosh, I don't know what's going to happen when the CBA expires. Um, And it feels like there's a bit of a detente while we sort of deal with the pandemic. Um, But we're coming up real fast on the end of that CBA, and it doesn't seem like there's any love lost on either side. No, there's there's. Probably not love lost. I think if your cooperation during COVID and the pandemic doesn't at least uh, set some mutual respect in place and remind everyone that there's so much more to lose if you don't have the game than there is um, the alternative, which is compromise and just making sure that you don't you don't leave the the fans wondering what the heck you're doing when your fan base is losing job after job after job, um, wondering how they're going to feed their families, um, wondering how they're going to get healthy when they don't have access to to the materials needed to build these wonderful but bubbles with ballroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> playing fields built within ballrooms and everything. They have to keep their perspective. They have to check their egos. And um, Tony is is crackerjack smart. And I think that he is going to have, find, he and Rob will find that they have more in common when they, they keep those things in mind than, than they would otherwise. Maybe if we're in the roaring 20s, um, maybe everybody gets to be a little more selfish than they're going to get to be right now. Um, There was a reason why, here we go again, FDR asked baseball not to stop playing when World War II broke out because it's a game that transcends just sports. It means so much more to to the country. And I think that that still holds. It, nobody gets beat up as much as baseball if there's a labor stoppage. It, they just don't. Um, football, they can bring in replacement players as long as um, Las Vegas can set the betting line. Everybody's happy. Uh, doesn't matter who's wearing the helmet. Um, basketball has it figured out, so we don't have to worry about them. And um, I think that if this pandemic carries on and the country's still on kind of a fragile setting, they'll figure it out. But I'm the eternal optimist. What do I know? 
<laughs> well, Claire, we're we're so excited. You're so generous with your time. Um, we're so thrilled to be able to talk with you and hear your very expert opinions on on all things uh, surrounding baseball. Make sure you go give Claire Smith a follow on Twitter at Ms. C. Smith. Um, like I said, I, I can't think of a more respected sports writer um, in America, maybe the world, than Claire Smith. So we're, oh, we're here. Thrilled that you were here, Claire. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Julie. It's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. How, how terrific is she, Julie? Somebody that I know she really is. She's somebody that you and I have both looked up to in this business, really kind of a giant and uh, just so much respect for her. But she brings up a couple of really good points that I kind of just wanted to toss around with you. Um, and number one is the future for baseball fans and baseball viewing. And I think she did a really good job of detailing how baseball isn't preparing well for a successful next decade when it comes to fans. And, um, and I just, and I think that's, you know, we looked at at Maris, we've done some polling and there are fewer baseball fans, fewer self-identified baseball fans. Now, when we ask different, um, populations, different Americans about what their sports affinities are. And, you know, that's obviously an issue. The population of young players that you have coming up is an issue. I think sometimes, you know, the more they reflect, uh, the world and, you know, the U.S. and different socioeconomic groups, the better off a sport tends to do for whatever reason. Um, you know, I think of the way, you know, boxing failed it, when it failed to bring in certain fans and certain players. And and I think, you know, baseball would be wise to to try to avoid that. But But I'm thinking, like, how does it position itself and how could it use COVID as kind of some of the changes that it had to make as a springboard for being for for kind of reinventing itself. Well, I hate the COVID changes. So um, I'm going to say not at all. But but that is the baseball purist in me. I, you know, I think that baseball has um, a long way to go in learning about how to market a sport. The thing the NBA does better than anyone else is they let the fans market the sport for them. You don't see NBA coming after people with cease and desist letters because they shared a GIF from mm. a game. They don't want you to miss it. They want you to be sitting there during the NBA finals, seeing everybody sharing stuff and being like, oh my God, I'm missing everything. I have to go turn the game on. Um, And they let fans do that for them. Whereas baseball, on the other hand, has acted like you are infringing on their property, that you, you know, if you're sharing a GIF or if you take a picture and do something funny with it on social media, that you are um, somehow violating the sacred sport and you're going to get slapped with a cease and desist letter. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that baseball tried to say they own statistics and nobody else could use them. I mean, that has been the difference between the way baseball has approached their fans and the way the NBA has approached their fans. And, you know, one of the things we talked about with Claire that I I still think is true is, you know, everybody knows who has beef with who in the WNBA. Everybody knows who's going back to face their former team. Everybody knows, you know, and in baseball, they just they shut that stuff down so quickly because they don't want to, you know, besmirch the game by having guys smack talk at each other or something. When, to be honest, that would be the most exciting thing that happens in a baseball game. (laughs) <laughs> and I love right. baseball. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, it definitely, you know, part, I think baseball has existed for a long time on this idea of tradition and, you know, take me out to the ball game and everything else. And, um, and you have the, you have the old statistics and new statistics that have come into the game and kind of which broadcasts are using which set of statistics, um, you know, as an indicator in terms of like what kind of fan base are trying to reach, right. Use the older statistics. If you're talking to the more traditional audience and, and I, and I think that's a, that's a great point, but how is it that they can use this kind of stuff to, I mean, let's face it. If you didn't grow up in a day and age where sitting down and watching some for something for three hours is appealing to you, it's going to be hard to get into baseball. And I just think there's got to be a way that they can, they can try to, to modernize the game just a little bit more without, you know, without, without changing the fundamentals of the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the biggest is the idea of moving the mound back, which I am hundred percent in favor of. I mean, right now, Pitchers are, it's been this way ever since the steroid era ended, that the pitchers are ahead of the hitters. Mm -hmm. And so you either see a home run or you see a strikeout, you know, and and that is not interesting. It's not interesting to me. I mean, I find myself drifting off more and more during baseball games um, in the past several years. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I, th- I think there's things they can do. My big thing is to sort of even out what's happening between the pitchers and the hitters. And I, I, I'm not really for outlawing the shift or or putting guys on second base and, you know, or going to seven innings right. and double headers. Like, I'm not really a fan of all that stuff. But if there's anything they can do to sort of equalize the pitchers coming at the hitters, maybe we need to flatten the mound out. And maybe you should be throwing from a flat mound. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is tough because right now the pitchers are so far ahead of the hitters and, um, a lot of hitters have been reduced, a lot of the hitters to try to combat the shift and combat what they're getting from the pitchers is to try to, you know, work on launch angle and all these other things that basically result in either a home run or a strikeout. And it's not fun to watch. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think when we see the way that ratings have gone down during COVID for sports across the board and particularly with baseball, Um, And the way that people are changing the way they view sports, doing, you know, more consumption, you know, via streaming and or even via social media and via highlights. I think, you know, baseball really does have to catch up to that or they're going to to find that that kind of other sports are passing them by. And, um, you know, and that would be a shame because I think baseball has been in some ways, you know, the most consistently. Uh, popular game that we still have going in a big way. You know, horse racing isn't what it used to be. Boxing isn't what it used to be. But you can go back 100 years and still find that baseball was just as popular. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, But, you know, and a lot of it, too, I think, has to do with fans coming in from other cultures, from Caribbean cultures or or from Asian cultures, Southeast Asian cultures. um, And they are used to seeing baseball played with great joy and verve and excitement. Mm -hmm. And what you get in Major League Baseball is a lot of white guys telling you, don't make eye contact, put your head down, run the bases, don't show up a pitcher, don't do this, don't talk smack, don't, you know, and it's just, it's no fun. Right. So, that's my soapbox about baseball. Well, I think we're for fun, Julie. I think that's what we've discovered. We are for fun. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, that it was a great it was a great conversation with Claire. So glad that she was able to make it. Oh, you know what I wanted to say on the air before we leave? I don't know if okay. anyone's even still listening at this point, but on the off chance that people are still listening. Um, I got a COVID shot last week and had this horrible reaction to the first shot. I mean, not horrible. Like I wasn't like in anaphylactic shock or anything, but I really felt like I had a bad flu for a couple of days. And I just wanted to put it out there because I feel like I'm hearing this about everybody's second shot, but nobody's first shot. And Soraya Shamali shared with me an article from the New Yorker today that shows that basically women are having much stronger reactions mm-hmm. to the shots than men, because we have something like we metabolize the vaccine five times faster and we make twice as many antibodies or something like that. So I just want you to know if you're getting your first shot, just be prepared for the fact that it might knock you on your ass for a couple of days the first time. And also that you're not alone if that happens to you. I would like to just say also congratulations, Julie, on getting your shot. That's amazing. Everybody should, when they get in, when it's their turn, should be taking that shot. So that's fantastic. First time Um, having a heart defect has ever worked out for me ever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the thing, right? Like I have a don't ask, don't tell policy whenever anybody, because I just don't want them to have to explain their, right, right. Well, you know what I mean? Like it is definitely something where you do feel like you have to probably say something so that people don't think you're, oh yeah, yeah. I know somebody who's a doctor and they told me they had an extra shot or whatever. Yeah, I do. Know? I do feel like yeah. I have to say that. Yes. Um, right. Especially on Twitter today. Like, <laughs> Twitter today was really horrible. It's Aww. screaming at people that they didn't think should have been in line. And you don't know what anyone has as an underlying condition. You have no idea. None. Like, plenty of people with underlying conditions walk around looking just as healthy as the rest of us. So just mind your own business. Every person who gets a shot makes every person a little bit safer. So just focus on that. Well, 100%. It's not up to me what to find out whether or not somebody is eligible. It's up to the state of New York or the state of Illinois, right. the state of California. So, I mean, nobody else has to worry themselves about, about what the, uh, the, the medical profile of anybody is. I said to my doctor, hey, technically I qualify for this. Should I get it? And she said, yes, I would feel better if you got it. And so I was like, okay. So then I did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And we, that is the goal to get every single person to be vaccinated, but it is absolutely, there's more and more coming out now about how, you know, a lot of these shots do give you real side effects. It's not a joke. You know, you really should probably 
plan plan to have a light day. Yeah. <laughs> so my husband it. was totally fine. And it was like, it was like a cartoon. Like he's completely fine. And I'm sitting there like shivering under the covers. Like <laughs> I, I kept having these weird like brain zaps. It felt like, like everything just felt very strange. And then yesterday I slept for like six hours in the middle of the day. So oh. just know that that might be coming your way. It means it's working. You're cooking those antibodies. Yeah, exactly. You make a lot of energy for that. Yeah. And it means that we will be here on the ladies room for more time. Right. And you are, you've now crossed the threshold, haven't you? I have. I have. Yeah, Jane is fully immune. I am. She's I had am. both shots. It's been two weeks and she I... is now out there in the world. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that I'm still, no, I, I did, I did go to a public place where there were many people, um, over the weekend oh, and I was, well, but I have to say it was a bit surreal. I always was kind of like, is this okay? Like, you know, like, how do I feel about this? I, it wasn't like I was out there YOLO, you know, yeah. waving a towel above my head or something. <laughs> I was like, like people in Florida. Felt, it felt tentative, you know, it did, because I think we've all been you know, we've all been living our lives like, um, in a, I have anyway, I've been living my life in a more tentative, deliberate yes. way. Well, and um, let me just tell you about going to get it. I don't know what it was like where you went, but I'm in an abandoned department store where everyone is snaking back and forth slowly through this line. Everyone has masks on and a guy is talking to you. The lights are flickering off and on because it's like fluorescent lighting and they're buzzing. And a guy is yelling into a megaphone, please keep the line moving. Please have this ready when you get it. And I was like, this is like the end of the world. I feel like <laughs> I'm in like, I feel like, you know, the scene in I Am Legend where they're like all getting on the helicopters and they're taking everyone's temperatures. That's what it felt like. <laughs> well, so I had a very different experience. I went to um, the Westchester County Center, which is a big basketball venue where the girls and boys section one basketball tournaments have been held for many years, which I covered for probably five, six years as a reporter at the Journal News. And so I took my mother-in-law first before I even ever went for myself to get her first shot. And um, she needs uh, she needed mobility assistance. So I was there for that. But to see the county center completely transformed into a really efficient and well-run um, just vaccine site was incredible. And I did, I had, a, I had a real sense of, wow, we really can do these things yeah. when we need to. So it sounds like it was a completely different. <laughs> well, despite the dystopian nature of it, um, yeah. I, I came home and I said to my husband, like, that's how a community is supposed to run. Yeah. Like everybody was polite. They were bringing older people in in wheelchairs and everyone was like stepping aside and being like, take them up to the front. Yeah. Um, everyone was thanking their, their, the people giving them shots and, and, and they were moving people through so quickly. I was sort of like, this is what we can do if we put our minds to it and think of all the other areas of our lives that we could improve if we just ran things like this, where everybody sort of pulls together. The best part was that I, I brought my driver's license with and I dropped it. And so <laughs> this woman comes over and she's like, is anyone here named Julie DeCaro? And like people recognized my name from being on the radio. So then while I'm sitting there for my 15 minutes, making sure that I don't have a reaction, like, like 40 people are just staring at me and I'm just like, hi, how are you doing? Hi. Nice to see you. How you doing? Like, it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> That's hilarious. Especially I, I was like in my pajamas, practically. I had no makeup on. I you're like, like I, I was hoping to be anonymous here. Yes. Good to see I you. I wanted to be anonymous. Not like I'm famous, but I mean, people, you know, it's a pretty popular radio station and people definitely have heard my name and they were like, oh, hey, that's what's her face. And I was just like, hey. Right. Your personal nice life you. had collided with yes. your public persona. Yes. And I understand that in a kind of an uncomfortable way. Well, but before we wrap up this segment, I just want to say thank you to all the volunteers because there were mm -hmm. so many terrific, kind volunteers, particularly because I, I took my mother-in-law for both of her shots and, you know, and, and she, she's an older woman. She needed a lot of help and people could not have been kinder to us, to her and to everyone that I saw. And every time that I've been back, whether to help other people get their shots or to have mine ha has been, you know, really, it has been just like you're saying, it has been about human kindness. People are there, they're unpaid volunteers. They volunteer through the, the local medical center that is, is helping facilitate the site. And, um, and I just have to say like, they, they do it because they want to be there and they want, they think this is the right thing to do. And they want to help people who need help with this. And yeah. It is a beautiful thing. And so my vow, because I was, you know, knock on wood, 
able to be, uh, to get vaccinated already. My vow is to put in some volunteer hours myself now that I'll be able to do that in a way that is safe. Yeah, me too. I already told my alderman, like I said, next time, let me know when you're signing up volunteers because they've been having these, like they call them mass vax events Mm -hmm. where it's like the first 2000 people, the first 3000 people to sign up can come get vaccinated. And they've, you know, people there just keeping the line in order and doing intake and, you know, copying people's insurance cards and stuff like that. And I figured, you know, that's something I can do. Yeah. I can run a photocopy machine. (laughs) Exactly right. And I I do think it's kind of like a way of saying, okay, I I have this, you know, I was able to get the vaccine and now what, what can I do now that I'm vaccinated? Can I, can I, you know, run meals to, can I help out an elderly neighbor? Can Mm -hmm. I run meals to people? Like there are ways that we can all kind of contribute, you know, pay back some of the kindness that we see when we go to these vaccination sites. Well, on that happy note, on that life affirming note, we are going to wrap it up. Hope that you'll give us a follow on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro and read our work over at Deadspin. We will see you guys next week here on the Ladies Night.